Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. Today's show follows on from the recent Bristol Open Doors, where for one weekend in the year, you are allowed to go into many of the historical buildings that Bristol has to offer, get behind the scenes tours. This year I was lucky enough to go inside King's Western House, and if you get a chance to go, it's a lovely place, well worth a visit and the grounds are great for walking. And like with most properties of this age, it is absolutely crammed with history. King's Weston was the ancient property of the Crown, but after the Norman Conquest, King Henry II granted it to the Barclay family of Gloucestershire, who owned it until 1570. It formed the most western part of the Barclay Hundred, and the name King's Weston is derived from the legacy of ownership. The estate stayed in the Barclay hands until 1570 when it was sold to Sir William Winter. Sir William was a significant figure in the court of Queen Elizabeth. He was born in Bristol in about 1528 to John Winter, a merchant and sea captain. He took to the sea like his father and was schooled in the Royal Navy. By the 1540s he was serving on a number of expeditions and in 1549 was appointed surveyor of the Navy. He was the one in charge of the ship Minion that captured a French ship and was richly rewarded. He continued in service guarding against French landings in Scotland and built himself a good reputation and a large fortune. He was appointed Vice Admiral of England, the second most powerful position in the Royal Navy and was succeeded in it by none other than Sir Francis Drake. Word of the Week Prepare yourselves guys for this week I give you Frankenfood which is genetically modified food Sir William Winter was knighted by the Queen in 1573 and was pivotal in repelling of the Spanish Armada in 1588 
The estate remained in the hands of the Winter family and they continued to improve their property there. In 1616, they were granted a license to stock deer, rabbits and partridge. However, in about 1640, they sold the estate to Humphrey Hook, then a wealthy merchant of Bristol. Hook was once the mayor of Bristol, but when he died in 1658, his fortune was greatly diminished and his executors had difficulty in paying his considerable debts. Enter the Southall family, who bought the house in 1679. Sir Robert Southall was a royal envoy in Europe, President of the Royal Society and Secretary of State for Ireland. Sir Robert entertained King William III here in 1689, but it was his son Edward who rebuilt the house as we see it today. Robert was born in the harbour town of Kinsale, Ireland, where his family had acquired relative wealth and influence. He was sent to Oxford University to read law, but soon though, through overwork and exhaustion, he descended into serious ill health. He abandoned his studies and returned briefly to his family home to recuperate. A short while later, he was sent off to southern France to fully recover his health in a better climate. He convalesced for a short time, but his natural curiosity drove him to continue travelling, and he embarked on a grand tour through Europe. On his return, he settled in London and would regularly go to Dublin for business, returning to his family in Kinsale. On one voyage, he met Elizabeth Dering, the daughter of another affluent Irish family. And during a violent storm on a voyage back from Ireland, her calmness and fortitude in the face of such a devastating storm impressed him. And after a short courtship, they were married and set up home together in London. Sir Robert had begun looking for a country estate in which to settle his family in the mid-1670s. His attention seems to have been drawn to King's Weston from as early as 1675. As one of the major embarkation points for Southern Ireland, Bristol was ideally located between his family in Kinsale and the demands of court in London. Eventually, in 1679, he purchased King's Weston from the executors of Humphrey Hook, a former MP for Bristol, who had died in impoverished circumstances. Sir Robert's purchase of King's Weston coincided with his implication in the Popish Plot. Now, if you didn't know, the Popish Plot Panic of 1679 exploded in response to allegations of a Jesuit conspiracy to murder Charles II, restore the Roman Catholic faith as the state religion of England, and establish a French-backed tyranny under the King's brother James, Duke of York, whose Catholic and autocratic sympathies were well known. And although he was cleared of any wrongdoing, Sir Robert resigned his positions in court and moved his family to King's Weston in self-imposed exile. His wife unfortunately died in 1681 and Sir Robert diverted all his energies into improving his new estate and bringing up his only surviving son, Edward, affectionately known as Neddy. In the 18th century, King's Western was famous across Europe. 
And if you're a bit of a bookworm and love Jane Austen, then you probably recognise the name King's Western House from the books Northanger Abbey and Emma, where this is an extract from. Is not this most vexatious nightly? And such weather for exploring. These delays and disappointments are quite odious. What are we to do? The year will wear away at this rate, and nothing done. Before this time last year, I assure you, we had had a delightful exploring party from Maple Grove to King's Weston. Robert continued in improving his state and corresponding with his many friends and colleagues. He filled the house with souvenirs of his travels, hundreds of books and a collection of paintings and antiquities. When he died at King's Weston on the 10th of September 1702, he was buried in Henbury Church, where his monument still stands. In an epitaph, his friend William Bird called him Cavaliero Sapiente, the wise knight, and wrote, He had alone the secret of giving pleasure to others at the very moment he felt pain himself. When he was young, he was wise enough to instruct the old, and when he came old, he was agreeable enough to please the young. Book of the Week Now, fingers crossed, we'll be continuing our walk to London this weekend. But in the meantime, I've got the book Bristol and Clifton Slave Trade Trails, which does have some walking in as well. For much of the 18th century, Bristol was England's second city, and between 1730 and 1745, its premier slaving port. This book presents the drama of that period through six discovery trails. Maps, detailed directions and over 150 photographs help bring the story to life. And much like the weird Bristol set of books, it's a good way of finding out more about Bristol whilst having a stroll around the area. Retailing at 9 99 and written by Terry Townsend, I think it's well worth the money, especially if you like walking and history. Young Neddy married Elizabeth Cromwell, a wealthy Irish heiress. She was a striking lady who attracted the attentions of many and was, by all accounts, a strong and independent woman. She kept her family surname after marriage, which was very unusual at the time, but was known by her friends and family as Betty. They had four children together, Edward, Robert, Thomas and Elizabeth, but only Edward lived past infancy. Elizabeth died in childbirth in 1709, leaving Edward devastated, but with a fortune of £35,000 and lucrative estates in Downpatrick, Ireland. Her memorial in Henbury Church reads, She was a lady distinguished by a superior genius and understanding, and her affection to her husband and family. The charity and resolution with which she bore her late illness and foresaw her death are ever to be remembered to her honour and to be recommended to the imitation of posterity. As well as his inheritance following his wife's death, Edward had improved the family wealth 
by financing privateers such as William Dampier, who returned from licensed piracy voyages with large fortunes to be shared between their investors. As a member of Parliament, Edward was regarded as quite mercurial in his voting, and the opening of Parliament in 1747, Southall was put down as opposition. But in January 1749, he voted with the administration in the Committee of Supply. About this time, his kinsman, the second Lord Egmont, wrote in his electoral survey, Southwell is a weak man, has an affectation of being supposed to act according to his conscience, which directs him to vote one day for a proposition in a committee, and the very reverse the next day in the House. They think him an honest man at Bristol, but they have no opinion of his understanding, and I believe if occasion were, he might easily be changed. But if not, he will be as often for us as against us. Back at King's Weston, before his wife's death, Edward had dabbled in building projects, adding a banqueting hall, an orangery to the gardens. But after she died, his interest turned to rebuilding the old mansion. For this, he turned to the architect, Sir John Vanborough. Now Vanborough was the controller of the royal works under Queen Anne, and had already impressed the court with his works at Castle Howard and Blenheim Palace. For King's Weston, Edward was commissioning the most eminent architect of the day and was obviously hoping to impress through his choice. This is what the current owner, John Barbie, who recently bought the property only last year, has to say about Vanborough. Vanborough was a great architect and a terrible engineer. He, he didn't do his first theatre right in London. The, the, the acoustics were nowhere, which so I believe the story of the entry hall. He just had he was so good with embellishment that he had beautiful columns and statues, and you couldn't hear a word the actors were saying. But it already established his reputation for architectural. And good heavens, almost his first job was the Castle Howard, which speaks for itself. I mean, it's like the St. Paul's Cathedral of, of state of country houses. And I'm very, this is the size of a dower house. It's the tiniest house Van Brew did, even smaller than his own, which in my defense was a pretty big house. Just in, boffins at Bradley Stoke Science Labs have just discovered a restaurant on the moon. Apparently, the food is great, but there's just no atmosphere. After Edward Southall's death in 1730, his son, also called Edward, inherited King's Weston. He went on to marry Lady Catherine Watson, daughter of Viscount Saunders and sister of the Earl of Rockingham. And as an aside, if I was to be an Earl, that is the title I would choose. Edward was elected MP for Bristol in 1739 and spent most of his time involved in politics and in supporting the interests of Bristol merchants. He was reported to be dangerously ill of a complication of disorders at Wimbledon in Surrey, in the Derby Mercury of the 7th of June, 1754. He eventually died on the 16th of March, 1755, 
a year after standing down from Parliament, having left little impression on King's Weston. However, his son, Edward III, went about modernising the house and park. It is about this time that the formal avenues, courts and formal gardens began to be swept away as fashions changed towards a more naturalistic style of landscape design. Edward Southall III became the 20th Baron de Clifford in 1776, after the title was revived in his favour. He was to enjoy his peerage for less than a year when he died at just 39 after a bout of illness. His body was returned to Britain from France, where he had travelled to try and recover his health, and was buried with his predecessors in Henbury Church. His son, Edward IV, was just 11 when he inherited the de Clifford title, and his estates and fortune were taken into the trust of his father's executors until he came of age. Although he married, he never had children. At King's Weston, he lavished his attention on his nieces and nephews, and spent a great deal of time tending to the park and extensive planting. One contemporary recalled, The great enjoyments of Lord de Clifford when at home was planting shrubs and trees. Many thousands were planted at his directions. I can picture him now as I often saw him, a little insignificant man riding on a very quiet horse, followed by John Webb, his favourite groom, to superintend operations. Lord de Clifford died in 1832, and his widow decided to sell the estate, most of the contents of the house, and the unique library of books and manuscripts built up since the days of Sir Robert, thus ending almost 250 years of the Southall family at King's Weston. In my interview with John Barbie, the current owner, I asked him if he knew where the Southalls were buried. Oh, Henbury. Yes, they're, they're, yes, it's only open on Sunday. They have a beautiful family tomb with their, and the, the goat is their symbol. They're very proud of it. That's where we get Cabriole leg from. Capriole, you know, I guess in the yeah, Todd Capriole, like jumping goat. And, you know, and it does look like a little plumpy jumping goat. And it's really a cute crest. I, I plan to put it on cups. You know, I have an alternative to the front and the back of the house for the ones who... Hey, hey! Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser-known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts, to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at The Murder Bucket. Back in the day facts. First we go to 18th of September 1947, 
when the Central Intelligence Agency officially comes into existence after being established by President Truman in July. The 19th of September, 1893, New Zealand becomes the first country to grant all women the right to vote. On the 20th of September, Concorde 001, the first pre-production aircraft, was rolled out of Filton. And on the 22nd of September, 1983, the Everly brothers reunite after 10 years apart in a concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Their last performance together before that was on July the 14th, 1973, at Knott's Berry Farm in Buena Park, California. But tensions between the two surfaced and Don told a reporter he was tired of being an Everly brother. During the show, Phil smashed his guitar and walked off, leaving Don to finish the show without him. Their working collaboration ended there and then, until they reunited again. Phil Everly died at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank, California, on the January 3rd, 2014, 16 days before his 75th birthday of lung disease. In a 2016 interview, Don said he was still coping with the loss of Phil and that he had kept some of his brother's ashes in his home. He added that he would pick up the ashes every morning and say good morning, while admitting it was a peculiar ritual. On August the 21st of this year, Don Everly died at his home in Nashville, aged 84. Now, as I said at the beginning of the show, this theme came up because of the Bristol Open Doors season, which happened at the beginning of September. And when it comes up again next year, I'd highly recommend taking part. Now, there is so much about King's Western House that I'm doing a second part next week, which covers its later history. So don't miss that. But... Today, I have to say a huge thank you to the real stars of the show, whose vocal talents bring the story to life. And today we have Steve Shepherd, Catherine Ayres and John Locke from Bradley State Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>